note before we get started. In this episode, I will be quoting from historic texts about race, which means sometimes I will use terms that are considered offensive. I will definitely not be using the N-word, but some other language is difficult to avoid in context. All such terms will be within direct quotes or the formal names of organizations. Now to our story. The crew of the SS Yarmouth must have found their new cook's assistant a puzzle. I can't find any accounts from the point of view of the crew, so this is pure conjecture, but it's hard to see how they couldn't have been puzzled. What sort of man decides in his late 40s to take a job as a cook's assistant on an Atlantic freighter? Will, as he called himself, was reasonably competent in the kitchen, but it seemed unlikely that he had been a cook his entire life. Besides, he was an educated man. Exactly how educated, no one knew, but he could certainly read and write. What was he doing on the New York to La Havre run in May of 1919? If the crew found Will odd... They also found him helpful. The head cook, in particular, was thrilled to find someone able and willing to take dictation. By the end of the voyage, the cook had a thick stack of letters ready to send to his family. So it was frustrating when the ship docked in France that the captain refused to allow the crew to disembark. The head cook was so annoyed that he and Will came up with a scheme. Will would borrow one of the ship's dinghies, row himself to shore, post the letters, and then come right back before the captain noticed. They snuck Will off the ship, and he rowed off to the docks. And then the mystery of the assistant cook deepened. Will vanished, leaving all his possessions behind. In fact, Will tied up the dinghy, climbed ashore, and walked away. As he strolled into Le Havre, he left behind the identity of the SS Yarmouth assistant cook and resumed his own, that of Phi Beta Kappa key-holding Harvard graduate, newspaper publisher, and controversial civil rights leader William Monroe Trotter. He became again the man who had shaken hands with senators, chastised presidents, and led the charge for civil rights. It says something about Trotter's character that he made sure to post the Cook's letters before he caught the train to Paris. This is the year that was, 1919. I'm your host, Elizabeth Lunday. Thank you so much for listening. I am again late with this episode, and I'm very sorry. I'm getting over my third cold this winter. You can probably hear it in my voice. And that's just absurd. And life just keeps getting in the way of podcasting. I'm very sorry about that. I often feel that what we're doing in this podcast is looking at an enormous picture, something massively complicated and detailed. Each episode, we zoom in on one section of the painting. 
Sometimes this changes our understanding of what came before as we see new details or take in a new perspective. This episode, more than most, complicates the previous episode. Personally, I love this. I think it's one of the most amazing things about studying history. The more you know, the more rich and complex the past becomes. We are again going to look at racial issues, but we will be concentrating more on politics and civil rights than we did last week when I wanted to keep the focus on Red Summer. We're going to consider these issues through the lens of the life of William Monroe Trotter, a civil rights leader that I, for one, had never heard of before researching this podcast. And that's a shame. Everyone should know about Trotter. He was brilliant and uncompromising and inspiring and absolutely infuriating. And he has important lessons to teach us about battling injustice. William Monroe Trotter was born on April 7, 1872, in Chillicothe, Ohio. His parents had both been born into slavery, but eventually made their way to freedom in Ohio. His father, James, served in the 55th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment during the Civil War and was the first man of color to be promoted to lieutenant in the regiment. Trotter's mother, Virginia, was related to the Hemings of Monticello and a cousin to the line of the family descended from Thomas Jefferson. James and Virginia met and married in Ohio and later moved to Boston. They had three children, William Monroe and two daughters. James Trotter made a small fortune in a lucrative government position, and the family lived in comfort and security. Boston had been the headquarters for the abolitionist movement before the war, and William Monroe grew up surrounded by heroes of the movement. He received a first-class education at one of Boston's best schools, then enrolled at Harvard. He comes off as brilliant, but self-important. He was the first president of the Harvard Total Abstinence League, and he invited everyone he met to his weekly Bible study. He was an early adopter of the exciting new transportation technology, the bicycle, and was a familiar figure pedaling around Harvard Yard. He graduated third in his class in 1895 and was the first African-American to be inducted into Phi Beta Kappa at Harvard. He completed a master's degree nine months later, overachiever. Trotter found a job as a real estate broker, and that, combined with his inheritance, meant that by his late 20s, he was one of the richest African-American men in New England. In 1899, he married Geraldine Pindell. Known as Deanie, she was the daughter of a respected Boston attorney and as passionate about civil rights as her husband. William Monroe had believed since childhood that he had a mission in life to help his fellow African-Americans. His father had taught him that those with wealth and influence had an obligation to use their privilege for the good of others. Trotter decided in 1900 that the best way to advance his cause was to establish a weekly black newspaper, which he called The Guardian. The paper covered both local and national news and made a point of exposing the harsh reality of African-American life in the South to a New England audience spared such suffering. The Guardian quickly narrowed in on its first target, 
Booker T. Washington. So let's back up a bit and talk about Booker T. Washington. Washington was a generation younger than Trotter and had a childhood far more difficult and dangerous. He had been born into slavery in Virginia in 1856 and went to work as a houseboy as a child. With no money or family connections, his only way out of poverty and servitude was to work hard and cultivate the patronage of white benefactors. This he did, eventually working his way through college. In 1881, at only 25 years old, Washington was named the first leader of the new Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. Washington built Tuskegee from the ground up into the most significant black institution of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. This was a remarkable achievement, especially considering the increasingly oppressive conditions in the South. Through the 1880s, the civil rights protections established during Reconstruction were dismantled. African-Americans lost voting rights in Southern state after Southern state, and the Jim Crow system was constructed. Violence against African-Americans surged as the first KKK spread terror through the community. The Tuskegee Institute was a small, besieged haven surrounded by furious enemies. Washington defended his institution through any means necessary. He courted white religious leaders and philanthropists, raising money to make Tuskegee the best-funded African-American school in the country. He cultivated white politicians to ensure their support, and he did everything in his power to secure the goodwill, or at least the tolerance, of Alabama whites. This required Washington to make major accommodations to the white regime. Washington didn't hesitate. He cooperated and conceded and compromised to keep the Tuskegee mission and its students alive. I think he saw it as his best and perhaps only solution. But Washington's commitment to compromise had real consequences. In 1895, an African-American attorney named Thomas Harris was shot by a white mob for allowing a white Yankee preacher to stay in his home in Tuskegee. A bleeding Harris ran to Washington's house on the Institute's campus to beg for sanctuary. Washington turned him away. White newspapers praised Washington for his good judgment. Washington likely feared the consequences of a white mob descending on his campus. But African Americans felt betrayed. How could Washington not help a black man fleeing a white mob? Later, word leaked out that Washington had acted in secret, helping Harris escape the state. It was comforting to know that Washington had prevented Harris from being lynched on Tuskegee's doorstep, but Washington's insistence on prioritizing the prejudices of the white community over the safety of a black man was disturbing. Later the same year, Washington gave a speech in Atlanta that set the tone for race relations for the next several decades. In the speech, Washington urged African Americans to demonstrate their worth to whites through hard work, patience, and respect. Blacks would only achieve equal rights, he said, when they proved their industry, thrift, and intelligence. 
Washington then encouraged segregation, stating in what would become a famous phrase, quote, In all things purely social, we can be as separate as the fingers, yet one as the hand in all things essential to mutual progress, unquote. Finally, Washington proposed a compromise between Southern whites and blacks, what would become known as the Atlanta Compromise. African Americans would work hard, tolerate segregation, and submit meekly to white rule, and whites would guarantee them a basic education and due process of law. I have to say, this sounds like a rubbish deal, especially because whites never lived up to their side of the bargain. But Washington saw it as a way to save black lives. As a white woman in 2020, I am in no position to judge. But William Monroe Trotter was in a position to judge, and judge he did. He opposed the Atlanta Compromise, every single element of it, and viewed Washington's deal as betrayal. He called Washington the great traitor and the Benedict Arnold of the Negro race. Through editorials, articles, rallies, and speeches, Trotter dismantled Washington's entire approach, as well as the network of educators and editors known as the Tuskegee machine who backed him. Trotter deplored Tuskegee's dependence on white patrons, arguing that African Americans needed to rely on one another, not on white benefactors. He dismissed the idea that blacks needed to prove their worth to white society, recognizing it as a backhanded way of lending support to racist ideas of, quote, lazy, shiftless blacks. Trotter scoffed at segregation, recognizing, although this phrase came much later, that separate is never equal. Relegating African-Americans to segregated schools, forcing them into Jim Crow train cars, barring them access to restrooms, this was a mechanism to systemize injustice and legitimize humiliation. Finally, Trotter asserted that any compromise with racist Southern society was a betrayal of African-American people, a deal with the devil. In late 1903, Booker T. Washington arrived in Boston to speak to the National Negro Business League. The situation was tense. The audience was divided between diehard Washington supporters and equally passionate Guardian readers. A Washington ally stepped up to the podium of the AME Zion Church to introduce the leader of Tuskegee, but immediately broke into a sneezing fit. Someone had sprinkled cayenne pepper all over the podium. With a croaking voice and streaming eyes, he choked out his introduction. Washington came to the podium, but then instantly Trotter jumped onto one of the pews and began shouting provocative questions. The crowd erupted into both boos and cheers. Washington tried to calm the audience, but he had no control over the situation. Half the crowd insisted Trotter be allowed to speak. The other half wanted him thrown out of the window, possibly. Then the police were called. There was some pushing and shoving, and Trotter was arrested for disturbing the peace. 
Trotter's sister, Maude, objected to the way the police were handling her big brother and stabbed one of them with her hat pin. This kerfuffle was widely reported and became known as the Boston Riot. Now, we saw real riots in the last episode, and an incident where the worst injury is caused by a hat pin hardly qualifies. But this was the moment Trotter took a national stage. The incident earned him a reputation as a radical with no respect for the African-American establishment and as a fearless advocate for what he believed. Trotter decided the only way to defeat the Tuskegee machine was to create an independent civil rights organization. Critically, this organization would be founded, organized, and funded by African Americans. Trotter had no trouble finding allies, especially among black intellectuals. For example, W.E.B. Du Bois opposed the Tuskegee machine just as vehemently as Trotter, although the professorial Du Bois would never have shouted at Washington while balanced on a church pew. In 1905, Trotter, Du Bois, and several other activists met in Canada near Niagara Falls to establish a new civil rights organization. However, the Niagara Movement, as it was named, began to collapse soon after its founding, and Trotter was largely to blame. For all of his talents, Trotter was incredibly difficult to work with. His ego couldn't tolerate challenges to his leadership, and he was incapable of seeing anyone else's point of view. The details of this split are complicated and not really relevant. The point is that Trotter sabotaged the Niagara movement within two years. Du Bois shrugged his shoulders. He had known Trotter since they had both attended Harvard. He once told a mutual friend it was, quote, impossible to work permanently with Mr. Trotter. Instead, Du Bois gave his support to a new organization founded in May 1909, the NAACP. Trotter was not a fan. The majority of the founders and donors of the NAACP were white, and Du Bois was the only African American on the first slate of officers. Furthermore, the group refused to take on what Trotter and many others considered the most pressing issue of the day, lynching. You'll recall from our last episode that Ida B. Wells Barnett pushed for the NAACP to make its first priority federal anti-lynching legislation. The organization considered such a step too radical, and Wells Barnett walked out. Trotter decided his only recourse was to create his own rival organization, a group that, after some complicated name changes, would eventually become the National Equal Rights League, or NERL. Its first principle was that blacks and not their white allies should take the lead in civil rights activism. Its number one priority was federal anti-lynching legislation. The NERL was never able to attract the same level of support and funding as the NAACP, but for a while in the early teens, it was a force to be contended with, especially in politics. The Republican Party had been confident of its hold on African-American voters since Reconstruction, at least in the North. In the South, of course, blacks were prevented from voting. 
Most Republican candidates felt little need to exert themselves for black voters. So secure were they that African-Americans would back the party of Lincoln. Trotter, on the other hand, believed African-Americans should vote their interests. And if Democratic candidates were prepared to do more for the community, they should get the black vote. 1912 was an unusual presidential election year. President Taft headed the Republican ticket, while former President Roosevelt ran as a third-party candidate. Both of them had ignored African-American issues during their term of office. That left the Democrat, Woodrow Wilson. Those who knew Wilson well would have questioned Trotter's interest. Wilson was a son of the South who grew up hearing horror stories of the Union Army. His academic work embraced the lost cause narrative. He wasn't as blatantly racist as some Southerners. He wouldn't refuse to shake a black person's hand or call all black men boy. But Wilson loved to tell jokes where he spoke in the exaggerated, stereotypical voice of a and this is very much in quotes, darky. When working on the peace agreement in Paris, Wilson would tell these jokes to Clemenceau and Lloyd George. They found them incomprehensible. However, in 1913, when Wilson was first introduced to a national audience, most people had no idea where he stood on race. He had had an incredibly brief political career before he ran for president. So Trotter decided it was worth talking to Wilson to see where he stood. In July 1912, Trotter and a contingent of African-American leaders gathered in Governor Wilson's private rooms to ask him his position on race. According to a report later printed in The Guardian, quote, there was absolutely nothing hostile, arrogant, haughty, prejudiced in word, manner, tone, or look. And he, Wilson, said he believed in equal rights, regardless of race or color. Trotter went away beaming and told Guardian readers that Wilson would accord even-handed treatment and equal rights to all. Word flew through the black community. The NAACP decided to back Wilson as well, and Du Bois endorsed the Democrat in the crisis. And so it was that Woodrow Wilson, of all people, gained the support of many African-American voters. Wilson's victory in the 1912 presidential race can be attributed to many factors, primarily the split of the Republican vote between Taft and Roosevelt. But a significant percentage of black voters in the Northeast and Midwest voted for Wilson. Woodrow Wilson, the man who, during his presidency of Princeton, had refused admission to either African-American or Jewish students. African-American hopes in Wilson were soon dashed. Within days of taking office, Wilson ordered the integrated federal workforce to be strictly segregated. Black workers were ordered to separate lunchrooms and bathrooms. The workstations of African-Americans were moved to separate rooms. When that wasn't possible, rooms were divided into white and black sections and a screen erected between them. When even that wasn't possible, as in the case of one African-American clerk described by W.E.B. Du Bois, quote, a cage was built around him to separate him from his white companions of many years. Many African-Americans were demoted to junior positions or even the janitorial service, while others were fired and their positions filled by white workers. 
Trotter was livid and ashamed. He had encouraged his readers to vote for Wilson. He felt he had betrayed the readers of The Guardian and that Wilson had betrayed him. Trotter requested a meeting with the president and, rather remarkably, was granted one. In November 1913, Trotter and several supporters were ushered into a White House office. I'm not sure if it was the Oval Office or not and presented a petition signed by 25,000 black citizens protesting the segregation of the federal workforce. Wilson replied that he considered reaction to the segregation order exaggerated. Trotter replied with specific cases of, for example, black employees refused access to toilets. Wilson replied that he couldn't ignore such a protest, implied he would look into it, shook everyone's hand, and escorted them out. Nothing changed. So Trotter requested a second meeting with Wilson. This one was held a year later in November 1914. Trotter began by again explaining the harm of a segregated federal workforce. But Wilson was in one of his lecturing moods, and he began to whitesplain at Trotter. Wilson said that while the American people, quote, sincerely desired and wished to support in every way they can the advancement of the Negro race in America, unquote, the American people, according to Wilson, were also practical. Quote, we know, the president said, that there is a point at which there is apt to be friction, and this is in the intercourse between the two races, unquote. Segregation was not meant to, quote, put the Negro employees at a disadvantage, but to make arrangements which prevent any kind of friction, unquote. Wilson concluded with a lofty statement about how it would take time for the American people to outlive all of their prejudices, and African Americans needed to be patient. The president said, quote, it is going to take generations to work this thing out. It will come quickest if you men go about the work of your race, if you will go about and see that the race makes good, unquote. This was straight out of the Tuskegee Machine hymn book, as well as a fine piece of Ivy League lecturing. Trotter, remember, was just as much as an Ivy Leaguer as the president. He wasn't the least intimidated. Instead, Trotter replied that the federal workforce had been integrated for more than 35 years without any significant friction, so why the sudden need for segregation? Furthermore, any assertion that segregation was benign was laughable. Black workers were being humiliated every day. Furthermore, Trotter said segregation was, at its heart, a violation of the rights of African Americans. Trotter told the president that African Americans were not wards of the state or dependents entitled to limited freedoms. African Americans had all the same rights as all American citizens, and Wilson was taking away what the Constitution guaranteed. Trotter said, quote, we are here as full-fledged American citizens, vouchsafed equality of citizenship by the federal Constitution, unquote. Wilson stiffened into his most formal president of the university mode. Your tone, sir, offends me, said the president. Quote, if this organization wishes to approach me again, it must choose another spokesman. 
Only then did he respond to Trotter's point, conceding that Trotter was, quote, as fully an American citizen as I am. But then the president was again distracted by his grievance and stated, quote, You are the only American citizen that has ever come into this office who has talked to me with a tone and background of passion that was evident. Wilson then snapped, now sounding petulant, You spoiled the whole cause for which you came. Trotter was hardly the first person to come to the president expressing passion for his position. But those people weren't black. Trotter was unwilling to play the humble, scraping black man. Instead, he demanded equal to equal his rights. Wilson had never been so offended in his life. The encounter was widely reported. White newspapers had the vapors over Trotter's insolence and belligerency. The readers of The Guardian adored their editor more than ever. Reaction in the wider African-American community was mixed. Many felt Trotter had done more harm than good. But even those who questioned the meeting's outcome came away with a new respect for Trotter's audacity. Woodrow Wilson continued to infuriate Trotter. In 1915, when the film Birth of a Nation premiered, Wilson arranged for a private screening at the White House. Trotter threw all he had into fighting the movie. The NAACP also fought the film, but its approach couldn't have been more different. The NAACP fought a legal battle to get the film banned under censorship laws. But many of the organization's arguments against Birth of a Nation focused on the historical inaccuracies of the movie. The group published leaflets showing scene by scene where the film was incorrect and backed an effort to make a rival film that would show the black side of history. Trotter dismissed these attempts, arguing that some details of the film were inaccurate implied that other details were accurate and that the movie contained some measure of truth. Trotter refused to debate the merits of the film on the grounds that it was a piece of propaganda intended as, quote, a political assault on blackness itself and, quote, a final nail in the coffin of Reconstruction's radical egalitarian promise, in the words of historian Carrie Greenidge. Trotter's opposition took the form of protests at theaters showing Birth of a Nation. Black protests were rare. Leaders like Booker T. Washington opposed them, claiming protests only annoyed whites. Trotter thought white people were due some annoyance. He and a group of supporters showed up opening night to buy tickets for the film. When they were refused, they marched outside shouting their opposition. Protests continued day after day. At one point, Trotter and 10 of his colleagues were arrested for disturbing the peace. Trotter's mass action empowered black citizens who had no other voice. And by forcing the white establishment to arrest and subdue black protesters, Trotter exposed the establishment's inequality and embarrassed its supporters. Trotter's frustration with the NAACP continued when the United States entered the Great War. Both organizations supported the enlistment of black soldiers, but in the same breath, Trotter always insisted that these soldiers should be treated as equals with whites. Of course, they weren't. 
The Guardian ran story after story on the miserable treatment of black troops at training camps, the Army's habit of forcing black soldiers into labor regiments, and the limited opportunities for African Americans to train as officers. As angry as Trotter was at the War Department, he was equally furious with the NAACP, which had failed to use its wider platform to protest these indignities. His frustration boiled over in July 1918 when W.E.B. Du Bois published a short but to Trotter startling editorial in the NAACP magazine. Titled Close Ranks, the editorial argued African Americans should set aside their differences to support the war. Du Bois said, quote, let us, while this war lasts, forget our special grievances and close our ranks shoulder to shoulder with our own white fellow citizens and the allied nations that are fighting for democracy. Trotter was horrified to see violations of basic rights dismissed as special grievances, and so were many others in the civil rights community. They were especially shocked when rumors spread that Du Bois had written the editorial in exchange for a position in military intelligence during the war. This rumor was false, but it stuck and the damage was done. Trotter's relationship with Du Bois would never recover. I have said little about Trotter's personal life because he didn't have much of one. He spent most of his time working or on the road. In his limited time home, he was devoted to his sisters, his mother, his wife, Deanie, and a handful of friends who had withstood his difficult personality over the years. He and Deanie had no children. Trotter's financial situation had declined over the years. He had given up his job to devote all of his time to The Guardian. Eventually, he and Deanie were forced to move from their comfortable home with a view of the harbor to rented rooms. The Guardian was permanently in the red, but Trotter refused to raise the price. He was also picky about which businesses he allowed to advertise in its pages, refusing to accept the money of companies that sold skin bleaching creams, for example. By the war years, the newspaper was printed on cheap paper and its articles were sprinkled with typos. Its readers, however, remained deeply loyal. Deanie managed the paper while Trotter was on the road, but she also had her own causes. During the war, she became a dedicated member of the Soldiers' Comfort Union, a group of black women who supported African-American soldiers at Boston's Camp Devens. But then came the flu. Camp Devens would be one of the first military bases hit by the Spanish flu, and it was devastated by the pandemic. Deanie fell ill in early September 1918, shortly after a visit to the camp. Her husband wasn't home. He was in Chicago at a meeting of the National Equal Rights League, where he spoke alongside Ida Wells Barnett and urged the crowd to demand the rights Americans were fighting for in Europe. Deanie died on October 8th before Trotter could get home. She was only 46. Trotter was shattered by his wife's death, but threw himself into work, perhaps as a distraction. There was much to do. The war ended in November, and plans for the peace conference were underway. Civil rights leaders saw the conference as an opportunity to push for change before a world audience. 
In December, Trotter attended a meeting where more than 400 African Americans prepared an appeal for justice and democracy to be presented to the peace conference. Eleven delegates were elected to represent African Americans in Paris. They included Trotter, Ida B. Wells Barnett, and millionaire entrepreneur Madam C.J. Walker. This is a digression, but Walker is another fascinating figure from this era. She made her fortune developing a line of cosmetics and hair care products for black women. In 1919, she was the wealthiest African-American businesswoman in the United States. FYI, Netflix will be running a series about Madam Walker starring Octavia Spencer this March. Meanwhile, the NAACP was backing a separate initiative organized by W.E.B. Du Bois. This was the Pan-African Congress to be held in Paris during the Peace Conference. Du Bois had attended the first Pan-African Congress held in 1900 in London and was the leading voice in the United States for unity between Africans and those of African origins around the world. After the war, the African leaders of African colonies, like their colleagues in India, China, and Korea, hoped Wilson's call for self-determination would pave the way toward their independence. After all, African colonies had contributed significant men and resources to the war effort, and bloody battles had been fought on African soil. These hopes didn't last long. European leaders refused to allow African nations to send representatives to either the Peace Conference or the Pan-African Congress. Furthermore, none of the Western powers believed that Africans would ever be capable of managing their own affairs. All of this sounds distressingly familiar from the treatment of other colonies around the world. Against this wall of prejudice and under extreme time pressure, Du Bois did his best. Ultimately, 57 representatives from 15 countries gathered on the 19th, 20th, and 21st of February 1919. I would like to tell you that the Pan-African Congress called for full and immediate independence for African colonies. It did not. So pervasive was the belief in the inferiority of Africans that even leaders like Du Bois had absorbed it. Instead, the resolutions passed by the Congress called for independent oversight of colonial governments and a, quote, code of laws for the international protection of the natives of Africa. In terms of real on-the-ground consequences, the Congress was a bust. No one at the peace conference paid any attention. Germany's African colonies were divided up between the Allies without any concern for the wishes of those who lived there. Du Bois could only hope that the idea of pan-African unity would endure and bear fruit in the years to come. Meanwhile, back at home, Trotter had run up against a brick wall that was the United States State Department. Trotter, along with Wells Barnett, Madam Walker, and the other newspaper editors and ministers who intended to make the journey to Paris, had never traveled abroad before and had to request passports. Each and every one of them was declined. This was baffling and infuriating, especially because the State Department refused to admit it had any official policy to bar travel by African Americans. The passports were simply never produced. Inexplicable delays. So sorry for the inconvenience. 
Well, there was more than one way to legally cross the Atlantic. If Trotter could get a job on a ship, he could quickly obtain a seaman's permit. What was the easiest job to get as an unskilled, or at least as far as shipping was concerned, black man in his late 40s? Probably as a cook or a cook's assistant. Of course, Trotter had never cooked so much as a grilled cheese sandwich, and he was well-known in Boston, recognized on the street by readers of The Guardian. He could never slip unnoticed onto a seagoing vessel there. All of this could be managed. Trotter announced an indefinite leave of absence from The Guardian and vanished from view, He shaved his distinctive mustache and began a series of cooking lessons with the owner of his boarding house, Mary Gibson. Once he was able to peel potatoes with some degree of confidence, he rented a cheap room in New York, adopted the name Will, and began hunting the docks for a ship headed to Paris. All of this took time, and it wasn't until late April that Trotter boarded the SS Yarmouth as the cook's assistant. The Pan-African Congress was long over, and the peace conference was entering its final stages. But that didn't matter. Nor did it matter that on arriving at Le Havre and making it to the docks with a stack of letters from the cook, Trotter was wearing his ship's uniform and had none of his luggage. It's not like he could have packed up for what was supposed to be a quick jaunt to shore. He had managed to stuff his remaining cash in his pocket, but it wasn't much just enough to get him a room for the night in Le Havre and a ticket to Paris. He arrived in the capital on May 7th, the same day the peace terms were handed to the Germans. It took days for Trotter to find someone who would believe he was who he said he was, who would cable back to the Guardian for money on his behalf, and who would get him some decent clothes and a place to stay. But eventually Trotter's persistence paid off, and he was established in an office at a high-end business district. He immediately began churning out letters, seeking audiences with Wilson and Clemenceau, and deluging conference delegates with petitions. Each and every one was ignored. Fine, Trotter had been ignored before. He turned his attention to the newspapers. He was an editor himself. He knew how to pitch a story. And this time he got a response. The French press was fascinated by this black man with two degrees from America's finest university who claimed to be speaking for the entire, quote, Negro race. Remember, the French had been won over by the African-Americans who had fought so bravely in the war. They had been thrilled by jazz music, which now played in all of the swanky Paris clubs. But they knew little about the lives of African-Americans. And now this man, this Monsieur Trotter, was prepared to talk for hours about voting rights and segregation and the murder of black men and women. French papers adored Trotter. Le Petit Journal wrote about how Trotter, quote, brings to light the inferior situation of the men in his race in the U.S. and promises which were made to them during the war, promises which, he said, have not been kept. Trotter made a point of describing the hardships endured by African-American soldiers at the hands of their white comrades and officers, and he painted a vivid picture of the horrors of lynching. 
the Wilson administration was furious. This was exactly why they had wanted to keep Trotter out of France. Now was not the time to air the dirty laundry of the United States before the world. How dare this black man and I do not doubt that members of the delegation referred to him in far worse terms, who had once insulted Wilson in his own office, come to France and say such things. No, President Wilson would not meet with Monsieur Trotter, nor would anyone else in the American delegation. Undaunted, Trotter began attending all of Wilson's public events, then writing him long letters afterward. On May 30th, Wilson dedicated a new American cemetery outside of Paris. Thousands had gathered on what was Memorial Day back home. Wilson gave a moving speech about the cause for which the dead soldiers had fought. He concluded saying, quote, I sent these lads over here to die. Shall I, can I, ever speak a word of counsel which is inconsistent with the assurances I gave them when they came over? Here stand I, consecrated in spirit, to the men who were once my comrades and who are now gone, and who have left me under eternal bonds of fidelity, unquote. Most of the audience was in tears. William Monroe Trotter's eyes were dry. The next day, Trotter sent a letter both to Wilson and to every newspaper in Paris. Trotter's letter is a little long, but I think it's worth reading the whole thing. It goes like this, quote, Sir, lawlessness and mob murder against citizens of color continue to take place in our country, the USA. This was so while the World Peace Agreement was being written. Day before yesterday, while the Entente allies were waiting for the peace treaty to be signed by Germany, a man of color was taken by the mob from the courthouse itself in the state of Missouri and lynched in the courthouse yard after the court had decided that life imprisonment was the punishment due this victim. Yesterday here in France, in your Memorial Day address at the graves of American soldiers, you declared, I stand consecrated to the lads sent here to die. Many of them were lads of color, gallant and loyal, fighting for France, for civilization, and for world democracy. Will you, therefore, for their sakes, and that they should not have died in vain, grant to their kin and race at home protection of right and life in the World Peace Agreement? And will you not at once send a special message to Congress recommending that lynching be made a crime against the federal government? Yours, sir, for world democracy, William Trotter. Trotter had kept the readers of The Guardian well informed of his adventures in Paris, and newspapers across the United States recounted his exploits with glee. The Washington Bee, for example, saluted Trotter as the, quote, radical and agitator, uncompromising champion of absolute equality for the black man, and praised him for demonstrating to the world, quote, the hypocrisy of America. Donations poured into the Guardian to help Trotter return home, and in July, he arrived back in Boston after a voyage in which he was not required to peel a single potato. 
Trotter had no time to rest when he returned. Red summer had begun. Trotter's response was to be expected. He wanted African Americans to fight back. You'll recall from our last episode that Du Bois had also called for resistance in his essay, Returning Soldiers. Far from feeling united with Du Bois, Trotter and his allies greeted that essay with suspicion. Some accused Du Bois of trying to win back allies who had been offended by his closed ranks essay of the year before. To be fair to Du Bois, it seems likely he was sincere in both essays, which reflected the very different times in which they were written. Trotter also remained suspicious of the NAACP, despite the fact that by the end of the war, the NAACP had become exactly what Trotter had always wanted. The organization was black-led and black-funded. It was vocal in its condemnation of Jim Crow, and it was lobbying hard for federal anti-lynching legislation. But Trotter's priorities had changed. He was now convinced his first priority should be the protection of his fellow African Americans from lynchings and riots, and not through the law. The law had failed again and again. The only solution was to confront violence with violence. In September 1919, around the same time of the massacre in Elaine, Arkansas, Trotter began holding meetings with a small but passionate circle to form a new organization called the African Blood Brotherhood, or ABB. The ABB was headed up by Cyril B. Briggs, a journalist originally from the Caribbean. A generation younger than Trotter, Briggs was a passionate socialist. He combined deep concern for the civil rights and economic status of blacks with a mystical belief in the greatness of the, quote, Negro race. Briggs poured both of these beliefs into the ABB, which combined pragmatic calls for self-defense with secret rituals and ceremonies. It's unclear, to me at least, what Trotter thought of this side of the ABB. I don't see him as a secret ritual kind of guy. Since the ABB was a secret organization, much about it is unclear. No one knows exactly how many people joined or how many chapters were founded. The ABB claimed some 50,000 members, but historians who have studied it put the number closer to 3,000. It's also unclear what went on within ABB chapters and meetings. Did they stock up on weapons, train in military tactics? No one really knows. The ABB ceased to be secret in the summer of 1921 during the Tulsa Race Massacre. The events in Tulsa will sound familiar after our last episode. An African-American young man was accused of assaulting a white teenager and taken into custody. When a white mob assembled outside of the courthouse, armed bands of African-Americans arrived to defend him. Shots broke out, 10 whites and two blacks were killed, and mob violence exploded in the city. The African-Americans of Tulsa, some of the members of the ABB, organized to protect their community, but they were outnumbered and outgunned. Armed whites surged into Greenwood, the thriving neighborhood filled with so many black businesses, it was known as, quote, the Negro Wall Street. The entire community was burned to the ground. The assault included attack from the air by white assailants dropping homemade firebombs from airplanes. 
when it was over, more than 10,000 African Americans were left homeless. It's unknown how many were killed. White Americans were horrified, not by the massacre, but by the armed black response. All of the usual suspects were blamed. Outside agitators, wobblies, reds. The ABB was accused of conspiracy with all of these groups and labeled, quote, a secret organization of angry Negroes and a group of, quote, rabid Negro vigilantes. The ABB survived public exposure, but it couldn't survive the leftist politics of the early 1920s. By 1922, Briggs had become heavily involved in the Communist Party of America. The ABB became a propaganda arm of the party, then was dissolved. Trotter had already moved away from the organization after alienating yet another group of one-time allies. The 1920s were difficult for Trotter. His finances continued to decline. Meanwhile, Jim Crow was as firmly entrenched as ever. The KKK rose in power and reach, and all attempts to pass federal anti-lynching legislation failed. Trotter was not completely out of the loop. He met with Warren G. Harding and Calvin Coolidge and continued to lobby for desegregation of the federal workforce. But then the stock market collapsed in 1929. Subscriptions to The Guardian plummeted. Trotter was in debt, frequently ill, and often depressed. He adopted a habit of obsessive, endless pacing. Mary Gibson, who back in 1919 had taught him how to cook, did her best to look after Trotter at her boarding house. Saturday, April 7, 1934, was Trotter's 62nd birthday. Early that morning, Trotter was found lying motionless on the sidewalk. He had either fallen or jumped off of the roof of Gibson's three-story building. How do you assess the legacy of William Monroe Trotter? He is little remembered today. His enemy, Booker T. Washington, and his colleague and sometimes rival, W.E.B. Du Bois, are far better known. None of the organizations founded lasted, unlike the NAACP. How then to remember him? I would focus on two things. The first is his refusal to argue on the terms set by the enemy. He would not tell African-Americans to prove themselves through hard work and diligence because engaging in the argument gave credence to a harmful stereotype. He would not argue the pros and cons of segregation with Woodrow Wilson because all arguments for segregation are spurious. He would not debate the historical accuracy of Birth of a Nation because to do so was to acknowledge the movie held a kernel of truth. The one argument where I believe Trotter's clarity failed him was on the issue of violence. It is understandable, considering the terror African Americans endured in his lifetime, that he would have proposed countering force with force. The only other option seemed a sort of patient suffering. Trotter could never accept that. But he must have known that blacks would always lose in a head-to-head battle with whites. There is a way out of this trap, the disciplined and courageous nonviolence developed by Mahatma Gandhi and later adopted by Martin Luther King Jr. But I can hardly blame Trotter 
for not discovering this path himself. The second point I want to make about Trotter is his refusal to accept progress by degrees. Trotter knew that rights are something you have. They are, in the words of Trotter's distant relative, Thomas Jefferson, inalienable. These rights cannot be granted because you possess them as a matter of birth. They can be acknowledged or they can be denied. Halfway measures and partial rights are only acceptable for minors or wards. And as Trotter told Woodrow Wilson to his face, African-Americans are neither. Trotter insisted on all or nothing, and he deplored the compromises and accommodations made by Booker T. Washington and even the NAACP. I have wondered about that. Trotter lived in Boston his entire life. He was as well-informed about racial violence as anyone in the North, but he didn't have to live it. Remember how Trotter got in a scuffle with the police in 1909 at the so-called Boston Riot? If that had happened in Birmingham, Trotter wouldn't have survived the night. It is one thing to refuse compromise from the safety of a fine house with a view of the Boston Harbor quite another from a sharecropper's cabin in rural Arkansas. But perhaps Trotter knew that. Perhaps he knew that he, from his fine house, could refuse compromise, and that his position not only entitled him to that choice, but required it of him. If William Monroe Trotter gave in, what hope did anyone else have? he would use every scrap of security and authority and advantage to fight for those who had none. And so William Monroe Trotter stood shouting on the pews of the AME Zion Church and confronted Woodrow Wilson in the White House and peeled potatoes all the long, dreary way across the Atlantic because if he didn't do it, no one else could. Thank you so much for listening remember to check out the website where I've included a link to the book that made this episode possible. Black Radical, The Life and Times of William Monroe Trotter by Carrie Greenidge. Thanks so much to those of you who have left reviews and ratings on Apple Podcast. Thanks to Ben, who wrote that he loves how the year that was tries, quote, to show listeners the history is not a series of independent events, but a mixture of all the events and personalities happening at the same time. Uh, Ben has a fantastic podcast himself called Thugs and Miracles that looks at the early history of what would become France. I highly recommend it. And I've got a link on my website. Finally, a reminder that if you like the show, you can support it via Patreon. There are links on the website. Just click on support at www.theyearthatwaspodcast.com and every little teensy bit helps. I will do my best to get the next episode out in two weeks, but I will warn you, this is a busy time for me with paying work that keeps the lights on. So please continue to be patient with me. I appreciate it so much. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Elizabeth Lunday, and this is the year that was.